I found this video on YouTube of Warren Buffett speaking 21 years ago to a bunch of MBA students at the University of Florida. It might be the most notes I've ever taken, so uh, this might be a little longer than normal. So let me go ahead and just jump in. First, he starts with something that I think is very important. He says, you can have any habits, any patterns of behavior that you wish. It is simply a question of, what, of which you decide. Ben Graham looked around at the people he admired, and Ben Franklin did this before him. Ben Graham, in case you didn't know, is like one of uh, the most important mentors in, in um, Warren's life. But he says, Ben Graham looked around at the people he admired, and he said, I want to be admired, so why don't I behave like them? And he, find out, and he found out that there was nothing impossible about behaving like them. So one of the things I love about reading all these biographies is I'm picking up like a lot of traits. It's easier to see traits in people, other people than yourself, that you admire, right? You, uh, it's it's harder to examine our own self. So like when you see somebody, you read their life story, like wow, I I, I admire what they did. I want to be like that too. And I think having being constantly exposed to, uh, you know, what I would consider like brilliant people, um, I think it's it's easy to see how the traits they had affected the outcome of their life. And I want to have a good outcome of my life. So I'm sure you do as well. And I think it's just like a cheat code or an easy, easier way to get there. And I think that's what Warren's telling us here. Uh, he says, time, I love this quote. He says, time is the friend of the wonderful business. It is the enemy of the lousy business. If you're in a lousy business for a long time, you will get a lousy result even if you buy it cheaply. If you're in a wonderful business for a long time, even if you pay a little bit too much, you're going to get a wonderful result if you stay in it a long time. Uh, the third thing that I took note of that I want to talk to you about is there, this is um, right after the collapse of long-term capital management. And there was a rumor that uh, Warren was going to be one of the people to bail him out. He actually did put a bid in, but it was extremely low and it didn't get accepted. Um, and then he's just talking about what he learned from the situation. This is a longer paragraph, so, so bear with me here. But I think what he's saying here is extremely important. He says, the whole LTCM is really fascinating. If you take the 16 of them, all the people, all the pr principals in the business, they have about as high as an IQ as any 16 people working together in one business in this country, including Microsoft. There was an incredible amount of intellect in one room. Now you combine that with the fact that those people had extensive experience in the field they were operating in. These were not a bunch of guys who had made their money selling men's clothing and all of a sudden went into the securities business. They had in aggregate three or 400 years of experience doing exactly what they were doing. Then you throw in the third factor that most of them had most of their very substantial net worths in the business. So it's getting in the game. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of their own money at risk. Super high intellect and working in a field that they knew. Essentially, they went broke. And he says, that to me is absolutely fascinating. If I ever write a book, it will be called Why Smart People Do Dumb Things. My partner, meaning Charlie Munger, says it should be autobiographical. But this might be an interesting illustra illustration. So now he's going to talk about the fourth thing I want to talk to you about is he's identifying like the problem they did. You know, he just he just outlined like everything he just said would lead you to believe that, hey, they have a, a of a they have a chance of success, even if they're not going to have, you know, uh, you know, outsized levels of success, they probably won't fail. They probably won't go in the hole, negative tens of billions of dollars or whatever the outcome was, but that's exactly what happened. And so he's talking, what, he, what we're really talking about here is not like a philosophy on, on running a business. It's an under, it's a, it's a, it's a fundamental understanding of human nature and understanding that the, that it, you know, we look at, the outcome you're like oh those guys must have been so dumb it's like no they're not dumb they're human and understand that you're capable of doing that and so you should avoid 
and Warren's going to be explicit about what you need to avoid. So here's number four. Um, he says, to make money they didn't have and didn't need, they risked what they did have and what they did need. That is just plain foolish. It doesn't matter what your IQ is. If you risk something that is important to you for something that is unimportant to you, it just doesn't make sense. So he's talking about LTCM. This could be applied to everything in your life. He continues, I don't care if the odds uh, that you succeed are 99 to 1 or 1,000 to 1 that you succeed. If you hand me a gun with a million chambers with one bullet in a chamber and you put it up to your template, or put it up to my temple, temple, excuse me, and I'm paid to pull the trigger, it doesn't matter how much I would be paid. So he's just saying don't take tail risks. Never risk. Have, it doesn't matter if you calculate the risk. You say it was a one. Or a, I'm going to be really 99 to one. I'm going to be really successful. But 1,000 to one, I could lose everything. Then you don't take that bet. It doesn't matter. Um, so he's comparing that to, to Russian roulette. Uh, it says uh, I would not. It doesn't pay, matter how much you pay me. I would not pull the trigger. You can name any sum you want, but it doesn't do anything for me on the upside. And I think the downside is fairly clear. Yet people do it financially very much without thinking. And this was obviously very important to him because he talked about it for, for several minutes. He continues his example. Uh, this is the fifth thing I want to tell you about. He says, if you have $100 million at the beginning of the year and you make 10% if you're unleveraged, because that was the problem with LTCM, uh, but you can make 20% if you're leveraged, what's the difference at the end of the year? If you have $110 million or $120, it makes no difference. If you die at the end of the year, the guy who, uh, who makes up the story may ha make a typo, meaning your obituary. He may have said 110, you had 110 million, even though you had 120. You have gained nothing at all. It makes absolutely no difference. So he's talking about like, once you have hundreds of millions of dollars, an incremental $10 million is not worth the risk. This is not, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, so he says, uh, you've gained nothing at all. It absolutely makes no difference. It makes no difference to your family or anybody else. But the downside especially if you're managing other people's money, is not only losing all of your money, but it's also disgrace, humiliation, and facing friends whose money you've lost. So he's saying they just didn't really do a good job contemplating the actual risks. They thought they could come up with a number and that made them feel safe. But he's like, there's that models are, are made by humans and humans are imperfect. There's no such thing as a perfect model. Um, and I like the idea that he's saying, like, how he compares and contrasts, you know, making an extra 10 or 20 million when these guys are already, already super, super rich versus, like, the downside of, you know, d disappointing your friends and family, being humiliated. Like, that's a, you know, it made global news that you that you bl almost blew up the, the financial system. Like, no one's going to want it. It's not going to feel good. Um so he says, he, then he, he continues to say this number six. He says, it's like Henry Kaufman said, the ones who are going broke in this situation are of two types, the ones who know nothing and the ones who know everything. And studying Warren like I have, especially over the, la the last, I would say, two months or however long I've been doing this, at least at the level I've been doing it lately, um, which, again, reading 54 years of his shareholder letters, I think is a bit extreme. Um He's, he's not, he doesn't, he definitely doesn't know nothing and he doesn't fool himself. He's on the other end of the spectrum. He knows he doesn't know everything. So he constantly talks about it. He's like, listen, I'm, I'm too stupid. I don't know. Like I can't even, he talked about in, the, in this talk, he's like 90% of the businesses that exist in the world are too complicated for me to understand. So that he, and he, that's not a, he's like, that's not a negative. That just means now I know which ones I should, I need to focus on. Um, I just really love the clarity of thought that him and Munger have. And that's why I keep going back into this 
this un- unending reservoir of knowledge that they had that not only they possess through experience, but then they share with everybody else, which I think is just like the nice thing you could do. Uh, number seven, I get to work at a job that I love. I urge you, remember he's talking to, you know, 22 year olds, young, young people. Uh, he says, I urge you to work in jobs that you love. I think you are out of your mind if you keep taking jobs that you don't like because you think that it'll look good on your resume. So he gives number eight as an example of, uh, of, of a person who's just doing this. this. This really smart guy got into Harvard and everything else. He says, there was this guy at Harvard the other day who was taking me over to talk. He was 28 and he was telling me all that he had done in life, which was terrific. And then I said, well, what will you do next? And he said, well, maybe after, after I'll get my MBA excuse me, maybe after I get my MBA, I will go to work for a consulting firm because it will look good on my resume. I said, look, you're 28 and you've done all these things. You have a resume 10 times better than anybody I've ever seen. Isn't that, he's, so he's talking about going to, now doing something else just for the sake that it'll look good at a resume. Warren says, isn't that a little like saving up sex for your old age? There comes a time when you ought to start doing what you want. Take a job that you love. You will jump out of bed in the morning. Uh, number nine, you should really take a job. He continues this point. You should really take a job that if you were independently wealthy, that you would be, that, that's the job you would take. Meaning if you never had to work for money, what would you do? Then just go do that now, even though you need money. You will learn something. You will be excited about, and you will jump out of bed. You cannot miss. You may try something else later on, but you will get way more out of it. And he's, I don't care what the salary is. If you think you will be happier getting 2x instead of 1x, you're probably making mistakes. So I always think about um, one of my favorite writers is the, this guy named Tim Urban. He wrote, uh, he writes the Wait But Why blog. And he, he, he has this great post or essay where it talks about like there's two things in life that most influence the overall enjoyment of a person's life. It's what they do for a living and who they marry. So if you just pick the right job, in my case, I can't, I don't think anybody can really improve on what Warren Buffett's telling us. Like take the job you're excited about, take the job you'll love and the money will come later, right? Just get really good at it. Uh, and then two, marrying well, marrying somebody you actually enjoy, you actually love, you actually have a good relationship with over a long time. Uh, that's very rare. Very few people marry well. Uh, it, the odds are, I think our biology stacks the odds against us, but that's another, that's, I guess, for another time. Um, but I, I always think back to that, like making sure I'm working, like I'm spending time with the people I enjoy and working on what I really love and, you know, everything else is going to take care of itself. Um, now he talks a little bit about the kind of companies he likes. He goes, I want a business with a moat around it. I want a very valuable castle in the middle. And then I want the Duke who is in charge of that castle to be very honest and hardworking and able. And then I want a moat around the castle. So he talks about that all the time. Number 11, our our, our managers of the business we run, I have one message for them. We want to widen the moat. Um, number 12, he's got this interesting idea. I don't know if run, I can't remember running across before. He started talking about like everybody focused on market share. He's like, what about mind share? What are like, there's certain companies in the world that when you mention them, I say Apple to you, you have a thought in your mind about that. Disney is another one. You have a thought about that. Like there's things that, that he calls Warren calls his mind share. So he says, everyone has something in their mind about Disney. When I say universal pictures or 20th century Fox, you don't have anything special in your mind. Now, if I say Disney, you have something special in your mind. So he talks about this gives Disney pricing power. So he goes, when you're when a, uh, somebody's going to buy a movie for their kid, he goes, so if a mother is going to walk in and pick out a Universal Pictures video, so is a mother. Uh, oops, I left out a word there that changes the meaning of the sentence completely. So is a uh, so is a mother going to walk into going to walk into a store and pick out a Universal Pictures video in preference to Disney? It's just not going to happen. 
That is the what you want to have in a business. That is the moat. You want that mo- you want that moat to widen. Uh, number thirteen. Define your circle of competence. Everybody has a good has everybody has got a different circle of competence. The most important thing is not how big the circle is. This is so hard for people to understand. The important thing is the size. The important thing is not how big the circle is. The important thing is staying inside of the circle. And what he's telling us there is like, let's say your circle of competence is just maybe you might be good at running only one business in your life. Well, that's fine. It doesn't, you don't need to run, you don't have to be a serial entrepreneur and run 10 or 15 or whatever the case is. Like you could be really good at one business. He, he gives example in the talk of the family that bought Coca-Cola back in like, I want to say like the early 1900s or late 1800s maybe. They bought Coca-Cola for $2,000. And I'll tell, tell you more about the results of that, um, that investment later on. But that's, they didn't have to do anything else. If their circle of competence was, I figured out that this, this business, I figured out one great business that great business is going to make you fantastically wealthy throughout your life. So it doesn't matter how big your circle is. Just stay within it. That's very hard for us as a species. Uh, number 14, uh, how Warren used to study industries. I think this is still good. He says, I would use the scuttlebutt approach. I would go out and talk to customers, suppliers, employees, and maybe ex-employees in some cases. I would talk to everybody. Every time I was interested in an industry, say it was the coal industry, I would go around and see every coal company. I would ask every CEO, if you could only buy one stock in one coal company that was not your own, which one would it be and why? You start, you piece, you start to piece those things together. You learn about the business after a while. And he talks about, he continues this line, uh, number 15. You get very similar answers as long as you ask about competitors. So he asks the question, if you had a silver bullet and you could put it, put it through the head of one competitor, which competitor and why? You will find out who the best guy in the industry is. Uh, it's number 16 when buying a business. He says, I have to decide what the price is. That is either yes or no. I don't fool around a lot with negotiations. If they name a price that makes sense to me, I buy it. If they don't, well, I was happy the day before, so I'll be happy the day after without owning it. So this is actually on, I actually saw this. It was, I, I laughed when I came across this section in Jim Clayton's book, A First A Dream. Warren buys his company for 1.7 billion. At the time, Jim Clayton has retired. And his son succeeds him as CEO, so his son is the one negotiating with Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett—I don't have the book in front of me. Let me, let me hopefully my memory serves me correct. But he says, you know, I'll give you twelve dollars and fifty cents a share for the business. And you know, the son comes back. He's like, I talked to the board. We, we want seventeen fifty. Warren Buffett says twelve fifty. Son comes back. Okay, sixteen fifty. Warren Buffett goes twelve fifty. Son comes back. Okay, fourteen fifty. Warren Buffett says twelve fifty. And the sun comes back, okay, 1250. <laughs> so like, at least in that example, he's like, when he says, I don't fool around with negotiations, it sounds like he knows what he wants to pay. And that's, that's just it. That's it. Uh, number 17. Oh, this is going to be blow. This is going to blow your mind. Uh, Coca-Cola went public in 1919. The stock sold for $40 per share. One year later, it was selling for $19 per share. It had gone down 50% in one year. You might think it was some kind of disaster, and you might think sugar prices increased, and the bottlers were rebellious, and a whole bunch of other things. His, his point here is you can always find reasons that, that uh, it's not the ideal moment to buy. Years later, you would have seen the Great Depression, World War II, sugar rationing, thermonuclear weapons, and the whole thing. There's always a reason. But in the end, if you had bought one share at $40 per share and reinvested the dividends, that one share would be worth $5 million now. So that, that is $40 that compounds at 14% a year for 86 years turns into $5 million. That blows your mind. This, that factor, meaning the, com, the compound growth, 
uh, that factor so overrides anything else that if you were right about the business, you're going to make a lot of money. Uh, let's see. This is number 19, 18. Excuse me. Uh, if you make a mistake, uh, it, so he's talking about making mistakes. It, it, if you make a mistake in an area you know nothing about, you should learn something from that, which is to stay with what you can figure out yourself. You really want your decision making to be by looking in the mirror. So this is something I've been talking about on Fodder's podcast a lot lately, which I'm personally learning from all these uh, these entrepreneurs in the past. Is what, what to me what Buff is saying here. In other words, you have to keep improving your judgment until you can trust it. Nobody is going to make the decisions for you. No, like you're not going to be able to read a book and figure out how to, how to build a business. All you can do is take ideas and experiences from other people, learn from them. Okay, oh, well, that was a good idea. Let me let me put that in the back of my mind in case I can use it later. Oh, that's a bad idea. I don't want to do that. Um, but at the end of the day, you have to do it yourself. That's why there is no there's no there's like there's no such thing as like a school of entrepreneurship. Like I think the closest thing you would have is maybe like a Y Combinator kind of thing. Um, you know, but even that, like, there's so you can see the results. People publish them. Like, there's a lot of variance in the outcomes of even what. Like, it's a building a company is a comp is it's a complex adaptive system. It's gonna uh, re, it's going to react in ways that are unpredictable. Um, and so the only hedge against that unpredictability is making sure that you you're you trust your own judgment, your ability to reason, to make the good whatever good decision. You can't choose the decisions you're gonna be presented in life but you can choose how you respond to them. So I think about that a lot. Like I got to make sure that I'm putting in the work and not wasting my time. So my judgment is good as good as possible. And that judgment not only is going to help you build like a good business. It's going to help you build a good life. You'll put good friends, good hobbies, good things to put into your mind. You'll avoid all the, the you know, the shitty situations that, that happen in life and the bad decisions that humans are capable of doing. Um, I just can't, I can't overemphasize how important I feel that point is that he's making. Like you've got like your decision making has to be made by looking in the mirror. So think about all the other things that you're doing throughout your day as a way to pick up tools to sharpen that decision making. Okay. Uh, he was asked the question, like what you live in Omaha, like what's the what's the benefit of being an out of towner, like not being on in Wall Street? And this is again, this is this this reminded me of when I was studying Henry Singleton, something like I've been trying to apply in my own life. He says the best way to think about investments, think the best way to think about anything, he's just specifically talking about investments, is to be in a room with no one else and just think. And if that doesn't work, nothing else is gonna work. And I feel like right now we're we there's like a like nuclear war with in regards to like uh, there's like an arms race to try to gain our attention by all kinds of apps and services and we're just overstimulated. I think that's a word Warren uses. He's using those words back in 1998. Um, and something I've been trying to do myself is just like, okay, I, I love the Bruce Lee quote. Like, it's the daily decrease that's 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 good, not the daily increase. Hack, he says, hack away at the unessential. And so in my own life, I'm trying to hack away everything that's not my main focus and making sure that I'm not letting other, I'm not giving, your attention is so valuable and yet we give it away for free. Make sure the where your attention is going is what serves you in the end. I think this is extremely important. Uh, number 20, so he's still going to talk about this. He says, the disadvantage of being in any type of market environment like Wall Street is in the extreme you get overstimulated. You, ha uh, you think you have to do something every day. He says, the Chandler family paid $2,000 for Coke, the company. You don't have to do much else if you pick one of those. And the trick then is to not do anything else. So what you are looking for in, in some way to get one good idea and then ride it to its full potential. 
that again in the world of entrepreneurship is really, really hard. That's why I look up to people like James Dyson and Yvonne Chouinard, the people that are still going today, even Jeff Bezos. Like they've been working at the same company for multiple decades. Like I would love to be able to do that. Um, because that's it. really time is the only thing that's going to let you get to that full potential. A lot of people get a good idea and then they sell it right away. I mean, there's a, you got to do what you want to do in life, you know. But if that you feel that's the best idea you're ever going to have, like you're going to want to do something to occupy your time later, assuming you're, you're passionate about what you're doing. Like just why give up? Like just keep going. Uh, number 21, the best way to look at a business is, is this going to keep producing more and more money over time? Kind of running over his own point here, right? He's... he's I just said this in other words, but he says it better in two sentences. This is, I love this point. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat it. All right, I haven't even said it yet, but after I said it, I'm going to repeat it. The best way to look at a business is, this, is this going to keep producing more and more money over time? And if the answer to that is yes, you don't need to ask any more questions. That is super simple. Think about it. When you're analyzing your, the business, either you're the one you want to start, the one you're already in. Is this business going to keep producing more and more over time? Then you've already accomplished the harder. If the answer to the question is yes, you've already accomplished the hardest part. So just hold on. And if the answer to that is yes, you don't need to do any. You don't need to ask any more questions. It doesn't get more simple than that. Uh, number twenty-two. If you aren't work, oh, uh, this is my note. If you aren't working on your best idea, you're doing it wrong. He says once you are in, once you are in the business of evaluating businesses, and you decide that you're uh, you're going to bring the effort and intensity and time involved to get that job done then I think diversification is a terrible mistake to any degree. Very few people have gotten rich on their seventh best idea, but a lot of people have gotten rich with their best idea. So that's, that's after I heard him say that, uh, very few people have gotten rich on their seventh best idea, but plenty have gotten rich on their single best idea, is, in other words, if you aren't working on your best idea, you're doing it wrong. It takes one good idea, one good business in your life, and you you will have all the opportunity, money, and, and everything else that you could possibly want. That's why I'm so passionate about entrepreneurship. It's just, there's nothing else like that. It's crazy. Um, and it's sad, it's saddened that right now, it saddens me that like right now in the United States, at least where I'm at, um, you know, entre- new business creation is at a 40-year low. Like that's that's ridiculous. Um, okay, and then the 23, this is the final thing. Uh it, he was asked, like, if you could go back and live your life, would you do anything different? He goes on like a two-minute speech, but I think really he he's, he gives you his his single best advice on on living a happier life in in one sentence. Uh, the way to do it, meaning live a happy life, is to do something you enjoy all your life and be associated with people that you like. <laughs>